you were to go online and try to pick out a church to attend in America with hundreds of different options, world religions, and faiths, it is very confusing for someone who's seeking a relationship with God. Which church is, is right? They can't all be right. They all may contain some elements of truth, but they aren't all true. I think too many times we've been like the, the little boy who kept getting in trouble one afternoon and his exasperated mother finally told him, you're going to get a spanking. The little fellow took off running up the stairs. About that time, his dad came home and, what's the matter? He asked his wife. It's that son of yours. She told her husband all that had happened. He said, I'll, I'll take care of it. The dad went upstairs looking for the boy and he couldn't find him anywhere until he heard a sound from beneath the boy's bed. The dad got down on his knees and started to crawl under the bed after him when the little guy looked over and asked, is she after you too? <laughs> you know, sometimes in the church, we forget who the enemy is. It's not those in other churches. It's not each other. But if we're to fight against Satan and his forces, and to do so, the church must stand as one. It's no wonder that our Lord prayed for unity, asking the Father that they may be one, even as you and I are one. Jesus has only one church. And throughout the past 20 centuries, men and women have fragmented the, the body of believers into hundreds of special interest preferences. So how does one find a church that closely resembles the original church that is described in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Realizing that a river is purest at its source, let's go back to the beginning and see what Christ engineered the church to look like. When I speak of the church, I'm meaning the, the capital C Church Universal. I'm referring to the body of believers and not primarily to the building where the body assembles for corporate worship. So right now, I want you to buckle your seatbelt, and for the next 25 minutes, we are going to take a fast survey of 2,000 years of church history in a way that many of you will never have heard it before. Let's look first at the, the drift away from the source. The church began in, in AD 30, and for the first few generations, it remained focused on task, and it, it remained vibrant. We read about an exciting, dynamic, e effective, united church. Within about 20 years, uh, some trouble began to creep, creep in, and these New Testament epistles or, or letters were written to troubleshoot the, the human problems that were becoming evident in the church. But before that drift began, we, we read a, a healthy description of a church closest to its source. And let's begin there in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. On day one, when the church began, those were the original terms of, of membership and involvement. And then dropping down to verse 41, it says, 
Those who accepted his message were baptized. And we've just had decision day and talked about how that is that stepping across the line point of, of commitment. It says 3,000 were added to their number that day. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Verse 46, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. What was the result? The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We see the church created. The, the original church was marked by generosity, fellowship, continuing growth. And the first church suffered persecution. It was not popular or acceptable by the mainstream to be a Christian. Christians often had to hold their worship services in secret, even gathering underground in the deserted catacombs burial region for fear of government interference by the Roman government. And during this time period of persecution, the church was at her purest. At that moment in history, no one was joining the church from an opportunistic motivation. Living for Christ could mean the loss of a job, the, the loss of your family, the, the loss of your life. And ironically, and instead of stifling growth, the tough times of testing actually stimulated growth, both numerical and, and spiritual. In this intense persecution, which originated at the epicenter of Jerusalem, prompted the dispersion of Christians and, and actually seemed to be used by God to facilitate the, the spread of the gospel through the thousands of Christians who fled Jerusalem and were transplanted in new geographic regions as they sought safety. Herbert Cain, church historian, described this period by writing, the blood of martyrs was the seed of the early church's growth. Instead of discouraging followers of Christ, persecution spread the church throughout the entire Roman Empire. But all that would change under the, the rule of Constantine, and, and that leads us to the next time period. If you're following along there on your your insert, but we, we see that the church corrupted during the years A.D. 300 to, to 1500. When Roman Emperor Constantine himself converted to Christianity, he directed his countrymen to likewise convert. But the result wasn't a, a genuine conversion of all Romans making heartfelt commitments. And instead, it was this wholesale approach of haphazardly distributing the gospel, uh, an approach that only served to weaken the infrastructure of the church. Believers who previously had stayed focused and spiritually sharp now grew 
flabby and complacent with the new acceptance of Christianity. And, and it seems paradoxical, but Christians in the church were actually much stronger and better off when they were under persecution than when they were under prosperity. At that time, another corruption of the church was the advance of church councils issuing edicts that began to supersede the authority of Scripture. For example, in, in A.D. 593, the doctrine of purgatory was introduced. Now, purgatory is never mentioned in the Bible. This complete line of belief was introduced some 600 years after the church started. In A.D. 1054, the Greek Orthodox Church split from the powerful Roman Catholic Church. In 1311, sprinkling was sanctioned as a replacement for the biblical command of immersion. And during this time period, many tainted practices began to creep into the church as it veered from its original trajectory. Some of those practices were, were motivated by greed, such as the selling of indulgences. This was the selling of forgiveness in advance of committing premeditated indiscretions. Picture a scene like this on a Friday afternoon when a, a church member knocks on the door of a large medieval cathedral and says, I'd like to buy some indulgences for the weekend. I'd like to buy in advance the forgiveness for some anticipated lying, adultery, and drunkenness, please. The priest would say, all right, we have you covered for this weekend. That will cost you 300 shillings. Would you like a receipt for that? Okay, have a great weekend. Go and sin boldly. Now, what a twisted, misguided practice. I, I, I'm not surprised that the selling of indulgences is what financed the construction of many of the impressive cathedrals of, of Europe. And while we would admit it is an effective fundraiser. We prefer the biblical approach of asking Christians to tithe, give the first 10% of their income to advance the Lord's work. It's just a cleaner approach, don't you think? Well, the organized church in the Middle Ages was also guilty of trying to expand territory of the Lord's kingdom via the use of force. This wasn't mission work, and instead it, it violated the individual's personal freedoms to choose whether or not to accept or reject Jesus. And it employed military force to conscript converts to Christ. That was the church corrupted. But in A.D. 1500 to 1800, we, we see the church enter another period of history where we see the church corrected. There was no apparent need for, uh, there was an apparent need for change in the church, and it brought on this Protestant Reformation. And in 1530 in Germany, Martin Luther broke ranks with the mainstream church of his day. About that same time in 1536 in Switzerland, John Calvin was attempting to reform the church. The Church of England, the Ang Anglican Church, what is known as today the Episcopalian Church, was started in 1552. The Baptist Church began in 1611. 
The Methodist Church was formed by two brothers, John and Charles Wesley. It started in 1739 as another effort to reform the church. All of these well-intentioned efforts put the church in a better direction, but each addressed just a few of the areas of specific change that were needed. It would be much like a construction project of a picket fence, your, your do-it-yourself weekend project, if it went this way. Let's say I, I trace out the, the outline of the picket for the, the wood there, and then I cut it out with a power saw. And now I have two pieces of wood that are the same shape, and which one do I use, the, the original or, or the one I just made? So I set the original off to the side, and I take the, the one I just made, look like they're about the same size, and I, I trace around the one I just made and, and cut out the next picket. And I continue to do this each time using the newest picket that I've cut. But over time, what's going to happen to those pickets? They're going to get wider and wider and wider. And my fence is not going to have that consistency, that uniform look, because it's not based on a single template. There's no consistent standard or pattern. And the same was true of these efforts to reform the church. Instead of returning to the original pattern in a close adherence to those specifications, there was a series of modifications that improved the church but didn't take it back far enough. And so the blueprint now called for the next wave of change. The church couldn't simply be reformed it desperately needed to be restored. And that's what ushered in the restoration movement, of which Batesville Christian Church is a part, has its roots. So let's consider the path back to the source. In early 1800s here in America, there were many believers who had emigrated from Europe and had been a part of the the Methodist Church or the Baptist Church or the, the Lutheran Church and independently of each other, they were arriving at the same conclusions as each was asking, why do we have to wear these party names that separate us from others? Lutheran and Wesley were godly men, but they didn't die for us. Baptism is important, but we don't want to be identified as Baptists by a practice. Why don't we drop the designer labels, and just be called Christians. And so was born the, the Restoration Movement. Leaders like Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone, Thomas Campbell, Walter Scott spoke eloquently and convincingly in calling a generation to restore the first church as described in the pages of the New Testament. Some of their early restoration slogans we still use today. No book but the Bible. No creed but Christ. We don't claim to be the only Christians, but we try to be Christians only. In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. In all things, love. And that's the path back to the source that was begun by the restoration movement 
It was a, a unity movement focused on inviting believers to dispense with denominationalism in pursuit of following the Bible as our only guide. And from this effort, as it was going forward as a unity movement, things were, were very strong until the human problem again. A fragmentation experienced within created more division. There was a group that, that, that veered off to the left into a more liberal understanding of theology. That group known today as the Disciples of Christ, a denomination headquartered in Indianapolis. Some of their leaders in, in those churches began to diminish the biblical statements and truth about the miraculous, discounting the resurrection of Christ being a physical bodily resurrection. They took out the supernatural effects of the Bible, leaving it just another book. The, the other group to our right was the non-instrumental Church of Christ. And there emerged a separation with them based on the interpretation of the silence of Scripture. They felt that since musical instruments were not commanded for use in worship, since the Bible is silent on that, they concluded that we should not use musical instruments in, in worship. Their, their services are conducted a cappella. Well, the Christian churches, churches of Christ, like our church, remain in the middle of the road, stating that we believe in the truth of the Bible, and we hold to that, and we understand the silence of Scripture to mean that if the Bible doesn't restrict the use of musical instruments, then we have that latitude and liberty to use instruments in worship. And so that's where we fit into this this movement. All three of these branches or streams of the restoration movement have traced back to the, the pioneer wildfire that just spread across our country in the early 1800s. It began to impact our young nation. And at that time, this was the fastest growing church in America. Restoration preachers would speak to thousands at, at outdoor campground meetings, such as in Cane Ridge outside of Paris, Kentucky, and some of us have been to that site where some of those meetings took place. Their message was a simple message of a coming Christ and a liberating truth for thousands of people from the, the division of denominationalism. At those events, even the children who were present could learn the, the simple five-finger exercise popularized by Walter Scott. He would bring the kids up front and say, you need to know five things to be able to commit your life to the Lord. First, you must hear the gospel, and then you need to believe it, and then you need to repent of your sins and confess your faith in Christ, and then you need to be baptized by immersion. And that simple five-finger exercise, easily understood by even a young person, was something that was transmitted from adult to adult, to adult. And, and today, our, our roots are, are in that, that effort. Early Restoration Christians began to, to meet, and we still meet today in, in 2022. And that's where our, our church falls in. BCC is a melting pot. It's for people of all backgrounds, 
Catholics, Methodists, Baptists. Our church is a great church for those who have never attended church previously because we emphasize the Bible. We apply this divine document to our daily lives, to our struggles, to our needs, and we make application of its timeless truth. We recognize that we are all at different places in this life journey of connecting with Christ and and spending eternity with him in heaven. So whether you've been following Christ for a long time or whether you're starting out on this journey or whether you're still exploring the claims of Christianity and, and checking it out, this is the right place for you. There are those watching our, our messages online who have never attended our church but are, are coming to know the Lord just through the teaching uh, over the internet. Grace here replaces a, a works orientation toward salvation. Maybe you grew up in a church that left you with the impression, if I'm good enough, maybe I'll make the cut and get to go to heaven someday. Well, I'm here to tell you, None of us will ever be good enough. Instead, we stand in the goodness of God's grace. And BCC is a grace place. Works measure what we have done, while grace measures what Christ has done for us. So let's consider the picture of the source. What does this kind of church look like? What's God's intention for this single church universal? Well, we begin by trying to remove the barriers that can deter people from coming to church and from getting to know Christ. And we want to connect lost people with him and then construct them to grow to resemble him so they can convince others to embrace his grace. Batesville Christian Church is a, a church that anyone can attend. Uh, We have no dress code. We'll have people wearing shorts and others wearing suits. We'll have guys in jeans or slacks and ladies in dresses or skirts or slacks. It, it, It doesn't matter what you wear. What you offer to God is more important in worship than what you wear in worship. We're a church where ministers are respected but not revered. The restoration movement tried to restore this concept of the priesthood of all believers, this idea that every Christian is a priest. We all have direct access to God through prayer, and we no longer need a human priest to intercede for us. We have access to the Heavenly Father via our high priest, Jesus, to whom we can confess our sins and and find cleansing. Listen to the Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. Let's let's go back to verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
This is a church where ministers are, are servant equippers, not elite celebrities. Often newer attendees at Batesville will ask me, what would you like me to call you, reverend or pastor? And I joke, just call me his excellence. And uh, <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I say, please, just call me Jeff. We aren't hung up on titles, and we don't seek to elevate some servants above others. Batesville is a church that is inclusive of all who sincerely seek Jesus. Now, ours is a church without all of the statues and, and icons that people have mistakenly venerated and instead of focusing on the living Christ who is coming back for us. We want to be a church that welcomes people of all colors. As our world becomes more racially diverse, we want our church to reflect that. We don't want to be a church of just white folks. The, the picture found in the, the pages of Revelation describe a, a mosaic of all the people groups gathering in the world, worshiping God together. And all that we do on earth is preparation for heaven. We want to start preparing now for that ultimate integrated worship event of eternity that makes no racial distinction or barrier. We want to be a church, finally, that, that reaches out to lost people. I want to share a story with you, and then we're going to sing a song of of invitation, but 10 years ago this spring, just a few hours before sundown, I, I received word that a, a family in our church, the Schroeders, were requesting prayer because their seven-year-old son had wandered off by himself on their 100-acre farm. After being unable to find him, the rescue authorities were summoned, and I, I arrived and began to pray with the family and, and witness a scene of hopeless fear. Although Colin was an outdoors lover and enjoyed playing in the woods, when he was unable to be located, many fears began to invade. Why wasn't he responding? Was he hurt? Was he in the tall grass of one of the fields? Had he gotten turned around in the woods? Had he drowned in one of the many lakes or ponds? And darkness and cool temperatures of nightfall were quickly descending and there were packs of coyotes in the area. Had he been abducted by someone? A prayer chain alert went out from our church, and a helicopter with infrared heat-seeking device aerially crisscrossed the area. Divers plunged the lakes and the ponds. Three teams of rescue dogs sniffed for a scent that would find the first grader. Several TV crews were broadcasting updates. People from the church, neighbors, concerned adults and teens from all over the community, a total of more than 150 people arrived and volunteered to help search for the missing boy. All night long, we searched. Alternating teams of volunteers formed a human dragnet and painstakingly progressed through some of the densest parts of the woods all through the night. And Every moment mattered as we all worked together for the safe return of, of Colin. The following morning, about 5 a.m., a, a neighbor rode his four-wheeler up to a, a deer hunting blind. This tent-like temporary 
covered the outer edge of the large woods, and he found Colin safe inside. This resourceful seven-year-old had sought safe shelter as darkness had approached, and I'm certain he had a better night than the rest of us. (laughs) Unharmed, hungry and cold, Colin's first request when reunited with his elated family was for some scrambled eggs for breakfast. About 6 a.m., as the rescue team received the final briefing and commendation for their outstanding collective effort, realizing that such rescue efforts don't usually turn out with such positive results 12 hours after a, a child goes missing, I led the rescue team in a prayer of thanks to God for all of his help and deliverance. It was a moving reminder of how deeply one lost individual matters to God. Sounds a lot like Luke 15, the parable of a lost son. It says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one lost person who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. We as a church want to always reach out to the lost, whether they are physically lost or spiritually lost. We're not a perfect church. There is no such thing. But BCC is a healthy church and endeavoring to proclaim a timeless message in a timely manner that will be relevant to those who are living in today's culture. If this sounds like the kind of church that you're looking for, then welcome home. We would love for you to join hands with us in this effort of trying to restore and replicate that original church from 2,000 years ago and make our church much like it was at its divine beginning. So how is it with you today? Are you ready to serve him? Do you want to live for him who died for you? Would you like to know more about the the next steps and involved in in following Jesus. We would love to assist you with that.